0: You're listening to the Tilted Lawyer Podcast, a show that inspires the legally challenged to enter the courtroom armed with a plan. I'm Omar Serrato, owner of the Eagle Law Firm, experienced litigator, and the man you want to talk to before your big case. My co-host is Ileana Klon-Rosa, owner of Clone rosa Law, and a rising star in Southern California. And we're live. Welcome, everybody, to the Tilted Lawyer Podcast, and thank you for joining us for episode 13. We're very happy to have um, Ileana Rosa back Mm -hmm. from her fake illness, as she was pretending to be sick. (laughs) Missed our last show, and it was a good one. As she missed our the special (laughs) guest appearance uh, from my dad, came in to talk about how to choose an attorney, and he actually came in here to the office. I would like to say that um, if you hear a slight echo, I do apologize. Um. We're having audio issues, but I'm very happy to report that this will be the last mm-hmm. time that we do the show in under this format because we are we have our in office studio ready to go or it will be ready to go by the time we do our show next Thursday. And Ileana, for the foreseeable future, will be joining us in studio uh, to do the podcast live with us, and that should correct all kinds of the technical issues that we've been having as i've been saying i am not a video guy i'm just a lawyer and so i do my best and uh but here we are once again joined uh, by the eagle law Firm staff and you can see them in the fuzzy video There, <laughs> like it's the james webb telescope all right we're gonna have better cameras next week i promise but for <laughs> right now it's the stock webcam off of uh the laptop that we use here in the office I mean, it's the best that we could do, but you know, um, Jocelyn Escada, Melissa Pacheco, thank you for joining us. They're here to chime in. And uh, we do have a wonderful show planned today. There's been a number of, well, by a number, I mean two, there's been two uh, very high profile cases that have uh, come out recently. One of them was the Parkland shooter, Death sentence mm-hmm. trial. And that was the one that actually they just came out with a verdict today uh, where the defendant in that case is not uh, going to be sentenced to death. Mm-hmm. He will spend the rest of his days in a correctional facility without the possibility of parole. Um, and he's a young man. He's like 20, 21 years old or something yeah. like that. Uh, but that's, uh, that's what's happening with him. And on the other trial of particular interest to me because it's been so entertaining has Focus. been the daryl brooks trial but he'd be uh, very careful to let you know that he does not identify as daryl brooks he's invisible because he's a sovereign citizen and he's therefore innocent of any crimes or doesn't recognize laws of the state of wisconsin and or the or, or the federal government for that matter however most of his objections are based on his lack of the court exercising or allowing him to exercise is constitutional rights uh, but that's the nature of pro per. sometimes mm-hmm. um, also we did have a really nice discussion last week about the act of picking the right attorney and um, I spoke a little bit about uh, what I believe is required of a trial attorney if they're going to represent you in a case and I spoke on the authority of having done a number of uh, jury trials in my career, not just jury trials, bench trials, um, in all different walks of law. I have uh, I mean, most of my trials have been in family law just because that's mostly what I practice nowadays. Um, but prior to that, I've done a, no- a number of jury trials in criminal court, in civil court, um, uh, family law. When I'm with, oh, immigration trials, I've done mm-hmm. some immigration trials and those are always fun like you're walking into uh, the slaughterhouse to be slaughtered. Um, but over the course of my career, I had developed an idea of what makes a good trial attorney. And what I identified based on my experience is the number one trait for a, a good trial attorney is authenticity. Authenticity very seldom can be faked. And so therefore what it requires is a genuine empathy and respect for your client and the argument that they're trying to present. And I went in and I told the story about how upon when I passed the bar, um, I won't tell the whole story again on this podcast because I, I kind of laid it all out <laughs> last week. Uh, if, you wanna, uh, if you want to, you're welcome to listen to that show. But Basically telling a story about how the night that I passed the bar, um, the day after I got the results, as I was uh, severely hung over from uh, the prior night's activities, um, I got a call explaining that my father was in jail and he was facing criminal charges. And uh, they were relying very heavily on me to provide answers that I did not have because I wasn't even sworn in as an attorney at that point. Um, but they all knew that I had just passed the bar because. Um, It was 2013 and it was announced all over Facebook and we talked about what he had to go through from the day that he was arrested about when he got booked in and then when he was inevitably bailed out and then the process of preparing for um, his case in chief or his defense and um, how we went about selecting attorneys, a little bit about what my role was in that defense, which was very little given that I was a novice attorney. And um, we came to some conclusions, and I don't know if you had a chance to, to listen to it or not, Eliana, but I wanted to give you yeah, I didn't <laughs> the, the opportunity because you and I uh, very shortly are going to be going into a jury trial um, in the coming months, mm-hmm. and we are preparing uh, for a case that's very near and dear uh, to my firm. Um, and we have uh, clients that we're representing. We are walking into the throes of litigation and, uh, representing his case. And so from your experience, I know you don't have as much experience in the jury trial arena. Um, but from your perspective in, in the time that you've had to practice, what would you say is required of a good trial attorney?
1: Well,
2: like you said, of course, to be, um, authentic to be respectful um but in a more technical aspect i think uh knowing the evidence rules which for some reason some attorneys like to ignore or not uh review often um is very important because you can just lose a case on technicalities um especially on introducing or uh, not allowing our evidence to go in. Um, I don't have any experience specifically with jury trials, Um, just in family law trials. And of course it's just a judge. Um, but I would say also to be organized in a way, not only organized in like in your having a calendar or having your paperwork organized, but having your case organized on how you want to present it, having a strategy. Because a lot of times I see attorneys that I think make good arguments, but they're all over the place and they jump back and forth, um, between subjects and they just end up confusing the judge and everybody. And I think that does have an effect, negative effect on when the judge at the end tries to, uh, make a decision. Um, what else? Mm.
0: Well, to touch on that point that you just made, Mm -hmm. Because that's a very common one uh, for attorneys when they're making their big arguments. I don't know if you're a fan of the show Better Call Saul, but in the very first episode of that show, like he's doing a criminal trial and they show him like rehearsing his argument in the bathroom at the stalls. And the bailiff is saying, hey, they're waiting on you. And he's all, you know, trying to, I could relate to that so, in so many different levels. I've been that guy.
2: It was me um, today. But no. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Very, very often. I mean, you come up with these carefully worded arguments and they sound a certain way in Mm -hmm. your head and there's a complete, it's a completely different thing having to perform those. And really Mm -hmm. what it is, is it is, it's a performance in front of the judge, Mm in front of your clients or in front of a jury.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. And that nervousness that you feel Mm -hmm. never really goes away. Mm And I've seen people try to take different approaches like, oh, I don't get I don't get bothered. I don't get nervous or, you know, whatever. And then you go into court and you take that mindset to it. And then you go in and you give a lackadaisical argument because you were so unconcerned, mm-hmm. you've underprepared. You know, it's oftentimes the one, the arguments that you're the most uh, nervous for are the cases that you care the most about mm-hmm. or that you're the most prepared for. And exactly. so you get in there and then you start feeling your fingers start to shake. Your voice starts uh, to, to tremble a little bit mm-hmm. and you're worried about all, all of this st- different stuff and there's a trick, there's an old trial lawyer's trick uh, that I learned many years ago and that the, uh, the uh, I don't know the science behind it, I am not that kind of a doctor, I'm a doctor of law I'm not a doctor <laughs> of medicine but I once heard mm-hmm. that one of the best cures for anxiety in the moment is oxygen so right before you go and you make your big argument and you're sitting there waiting for the, ju- the judge to call your case, you breathe in deeply seven, eight, nine, twenty 20 times. And it feeds all of this oxygen to your brain and it gives you the ability to uh, to recall. And it there's this chemical reaction that happens that calms the anxiety temporarily. And really oftentimes that's all you need, just that you need, you're just trying to get that first couple sentences out. Once those first couple sentences out, you could proceed with your argument. And um, it's helped me over the years. The other thing, in a jury trial in particular, um, Melissa, do you remember a guy by the name of Jerry Spence? Who was he? He was required reading at our firm, as you recall. Um, I required you to read a book that he wrote. UK. Yeah, you oh, are winning cake that was so loud. <laughs> I really I'm 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 going to do my best to fix the echo on the edit. But um yeah, so Jerry Spence some would call him like the modern day Clarence Darrow. Clarence Darrow is considered the greatest trial attorney who ever lived. He's very much synonymous to like uh, the Babe Ruth for lawyers because of how effective he was as a trial attorney. Jerry Spence is very much in the same vein. And he wrote books on how he tries cases and how to prepare for cases. And he runs a camp for prospective trial lawyers or actual trial lawyers on how to try a case in front of a jury. And he rails on about like how these attorneys, they go into it so... Nervous. Their mechanism to dealing with that is to flood the courtroom with legalese and to show the jury and the judge and their clients about how brilliant they are because of their vast legal vocabulary. And they go in there and they spout off all of their legalese and are they sit back down to blank stairs from the judge and the jury because everybody was so bored or could barely understand what they said, they didn't do anything. And on the opposite spectrum of that would be a man like Jerry Spence. Who's not walking in there with, you know, the $5,000 suits or the big Rolex watches or whatever, the shiny shoes. He's walking in there and he stands in the well as he speaks to the jury to deliver his closing remarks. And uh, he admits to the jury that, uh... You know, I've been working for months on this case, and I am ashamed to say to you all that in this very moment, for everything that I prepared for, that I am afraid, I wish that I had more courage. I wish that I was better prepared. I wish that I was a better lawyer. And then he'll go into his closing remarks, but he will in a very realistic, psychological way, um, ingratiate himself to the jury, humanize himself. And in the process of doing that, he also humanizes his client because he's going up against this other attorney and the other attorney is whatever they are. But here is this guy that is very clearly passionate about his case, that has wrestled, Psychologically, about the ramifications of what would happen if he lost. And he's standing in front, wanting to do his best, and yet he's admitting in his most vulnerable moment that he is afraid. And who is that? But a man that you could trust is going to tell you the truth if they're willing to admit to you. Those very sacred, vulnerable self-truths that he holds in the present moment. And I think that there's this understanding. Well, I don't think. I know. What happens in a courtroom that you often see so uh, vigorously portrayed in the movies is uh, this war of ideologies. It's this war of philosophies. It's this war of persuasion. One side is trying to get you to believe them, and the other side is trying to get you to follow them. And both theories cannot exist in the same space. And the jury has to decide who to believe. And 99% of the time, the jury is going to believe the attorney who is most credible. And how could you possibly be credible if you do not have the empathy to have adopted your client's case as if it were your own and to be able to demonstrate to the jury through your demeanor, through the passion in your voice, through the passion in your words, through your mannerisms, through the way that your hair has become disheveled from the stress and anxiety of trial? The way that the sweat is pouring off of your brow by the heavy emotion in your eyes, how could they think anything other than for whatever the truth is? At the very least, this is a man that I could trust. He's admitted to me that he's anxious, he's admitted to me that he's afraid, he's even admitted to me during the course of trial that he's wrong on certain issues. If your objective is to go over there and try to bamboozle the jury with your intelligence, nobody likes that guy. They don't like him at a private party. They don't like him at the cocktail parties. They don't like him at the dinner table. They don't like him in private conversation in an office. They certainly don't like him in a courtroom.
1: Because most people are extremely,
0: um, what's the word I'm looking for? not self-centered, not narcissistic. They're, uh, they're not very confident when they go into an environment like that because it's not their home. It's, you know, they're in a foreign environment. There's a judge who is the keeper of all the rules that uh, makes all of these rulings and all of these objections. There are these two attorneys that have uh, JD degrees and have passed the bar and are attorneys and are sitting there talking at them as if they have all the answers. And for many of the jurors, it's their first rodeo. It's the first time they've actually sat in a jury trial. That is a very vulnerable position for them to be in. And think about where they're sitting. They are are charged with the act of interpreting evidence as it pertains to real law and delivering the gavel of justice. Those jurors... If you don't take them seriously, they're taking it seriously, and they're taking that job very seriously, and they want to do a good job, and they're going to be looking for people that they can trust, and if they can't trust you because they see that you're lacking in preparation, or that you're being dishonest, or that you just don't like your client, or that very clearly you're checking your phone every 30 seconds looking to get out of there wondering where you're going for lunch, the case is lost before it ever begun. And I told a story about my first trial, about how I was going up against this 20 year professional DA that everybody was afraid of. And I was was very afraid of because it was my first jury trial. And um, I got this feedback from the judge that the reason why I won that trial was because I humanized myself to the jury. I wasn't going after anything other than humanity. And that was something the jury could feed off of and relate to. And when it came down to deciding who they were going to believe, I was the guy. Girls, what do you have, uh, what do you think about everything I just said? Knowing what it's like to work in this office and working with our clients.
3: Well, one of the the things 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 I could say is that 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 I strongly believe believe that 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 the way, 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 I'm I'm gonna refer refer to to the Johnny Depp Amber case case defamation uh, trial One of the things that I believe helped Johnny convince the jury was the way he portrayed himself when he was in the stand. He seemed approachable. He seemed he had a very calm, cool personality. While Mrs. Hurd, on the other hand, and her attorney team did not look so approachable in many of the cases. Not the cases, sorry, many of the of the.
0: But why was that? Why would why does she not look approachable?
3: What do you think, Justin? I'm not sure, but...
0: You're not sure, but there's something, there
3: something
0: there that you didn't like. What do you think it was?
3: First of all, this is going to sound really, really like weird, but first of all, every time she came into the courtroom, she would not say good morning or hello or acknowledge anybody. It was just like her, and then the entire world had to like bow down to her. Mm-hmm. It's exactly the same way her team behaved.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Johnny's team, on the other hand, were completely different. They would say good morning, good afternoon, they would they would have their they would like take their time to give their good mornings, sit down, deliberate with Johnny. They were calm, like they you could feel the aura or like the vibe they give as a calm, cool, collective people, whereas Mrs. Hertz and her entire attorney team and her did not give you the aura.
0: What do you think, Jocelyn?
3: I think the same, yeah. Um, a lot of the time, Johnny Depp seemed more human, admitting his mistakes, admitting where he went wrong, how to be better. And and you could see that with his team as well. Like, they were taking it in as something that he could be better and he had made mistakes and he's human, right? And that, that was the entire trial, I've, I felt. But I couldn't really place my hand on why Amber, it seemed very different, the way we perceived her and her team compared to Johnny.
0: I have my theories on that. What do you think, Ileana? Well... Well, not about that. I mean, I, I've, I've talked a whole lot. <laughs> Sometimes I forget myself. Um, what did you think about what I said about my whole soliloquy about Jerry Spence?
2: Well, um, I haven't read that book, but what I do remember is, um, and I always have it on my mind, my constitutional... Um, class professor. I remember him telling us that it is normal to be uh nervous and worried for every single hearing because that means that you're prepared and you know the points of the other side and what is like uh what are your strengths on your um my goodness. debilidades, is like I lost the word um <laughs> Um, opposite of strength in, in English.
0: Strengths and weaknesses. Weaknesses,
2: yes. Um, but I remember him saying that the day that you enter a courtroom and you're not worried at all about what's going to happen, then you got to check yourself because that means that you're being too comfortable and you're going to get a surprise <laughs> that you're not going to like. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I think that goes along to with what you were saying. That you got to be prepared and also understand that you're not going to be, you're not going to know uh, everything and show that, of course, to the jury or to the judge or whoever, um, be personable. Um, and then I wasn't going to ask you, have you ever been a, a like in the jury? Like, have you ever been selected as part ah. of the jury?
0: I've never been that lucky. No one's oh. going to select me for their jury. <laughs> <laughs> I've always wanted to. I have gone to <laughs> jury duty, but I've been summarily dismissed every time. Oh.
2: I've always wanted to be part of the jury, and I never, I don't even get the chance to go to the jury jury, nothing. Like, I just get the that call that says I'm not needed, so I'm hoping. You
0: you never will no, I know because they don't, <laughs> yeah. the, the attorneys do not need another attorney in the jury you deliberation room.
2: Well, here, I know it's allowed, but in Puerto Rico, um, all attorneys are automatically excluded from the list. So once you become an attorney, attorney sensible. you can never be yeah. in a jury. So, yeah.
0: I was hoping. Well, to speak, speaking, <laughs> um, adding on to what you guys were saying, about, mm. there was just something about the Johnny Depp attorneys mm. and um, the, well, I forget, or Amber. Amber Heard. What was his name? Who's the other girl? Heard. Heard. Amber mm-hmm. Heard and her attorneys and how they were stuffy and, and whatnot. You couldn't put your finger on it. I really just feel like trials are not complicated. You know what's complicated? People. Law school exams. <laughs> law school exams are complicated. That's Passing weird. the bar is pretty complicated. Understanding statutory law is pretty complicated. Do you know what the juries deliberate on? None of those things, they deliberate on facts. They deliberate and they rely upon their own education and experiences to determine who's telling the truth. And so trials are not complicated or they should not be viewed as this huge academic endeavor. If you treat it that way and you look down on the jurors or they feel like you're looking down on them, you're going to lose points with the jury. And what kept on happening a lot in that trial was uh, Amber would be confronted with something that demonstrated that she was inconsistent with what she said and she didn't have good explanations and her attorneys did not do a good job of rehabilitating her. And I'm not even saying I could have done a better job on her case. Cause it was a pretty, there was a lot of bad evidence for her in that case. Sometimes you just got a bad case. Um, and I really don't believe it goes back to something that I was saying, which is you have to believe in your client. If you could, if you're expecting to do a good job, At a certain point, you just don't, you stop believing in your clients if the evidence is too much. And which brings me to another point. You cannot, and girls, you know this about me. There's been people that's coming to this office that I cannot represent. I can't represent either because I don't like them or I don't believe in what they're trying to do, or I don't believe that they're telling me the truth. And if either one of those three things are true, no matter how bad they might want to hire me. I'm not gonna be able to do the job for them. And so I'll just refer them to somebody. I'll refer them to Ileana. (laughs) Not really. (laughs) I wouldn't do that. (laughs) I'll probably go through the consultation and be like, oh no. (laughs) No, but it it, I mean, you have to like your clients. If you don't like your clients, then don't take the case. If you don't believe in what they're trying to do or prove, then you're you're just taking their money. And hey, some people are comfortable doing that. I personally am not. Um I've I've spent my career building. Um, a reputation where uh, part of what I do in my representation of my clients is taking on their case and internalizing it and making it very personal to me. So that when I do go in front of a judge, um, it's not just me arguing academically because that's, I mean, any, any lawyer could do that. It's internalizing it and arguing it in a way Uh, That is persuasive, especially in family law, especially with some of these in any body of law that requires discretion of the judge. Persuasion is required. The law is going to favor both sides to differing degrees. You want to know the real? I'm going to tell you guys the real story about my first ever trial. The real story. It wasn't this criminal case that I did. I was four years old. (laughs) And, um, four or five, I was four or five. I don't remember. My brother must've been like two or two years old. And, um, one of us had said a bad word and we went to go tell my mom. I don't remember who told on who. I think he tried to tell on me for saying something I might've told on him, but we literally had like this little trial in the house. Like, uh, who was responsible for saying what? And then um, I went and I made my case in front of my mom and Chris, she sent me out and I had to send my brother back in Mm -hmm. and he made his case in front of my mom. And then at the end, we did this a couple of times and at the very end of it, I was like, my mom comes up with this, uh, she's gonna split the baby type of verdict. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Well, I guess since I don't know who's telling the truth, I guess I'm just gonna have spank both of you. And so I stood up straight and tall and I said, mom, okay but if you do that you just understand that you were going to spank the guy that was telling the truth and then with that I dropped the mic I walked out and then she called my brother in and then he he got a spanking and um I was fully expecting to be called back into the room and no I did not I was over I won the trial I won the big case (laughs) <laughs> I don't know what that was indicative of. I don't know what was a sign of anything or not. But in that moment, I understood or I learned something uh, about uh, persuasion. And it requires that the person that is trying the case or the person that is making the decisions connects with you on some kind of a level. And they have to have some trust for you. And it's, it's a game of integrity. At four years old, that was my first lesson on the effectiveness of that. Um, for the record, as a 42-year-old man, um, 38 years later, I don't remember if I was telling the truth or not. I'm pretty sure that did. I may or may oh, wow. not have. I'm pretty sure. Judging by how I used to be back then, um, I'm pretty sure I was telling the truth. I just I have no recollection. I don't know what happened. But, um... That was my story as to that. Um, Eliana, did you have anything to add?
2: Um, no, to that subject, not really.
0: <clears throat> so then let's talk about the Parkland shooting. Yes. Um, death penalty. Um, did you see that the verdict had come down this um, morning? Um,
2: no, I only saw like a... I read one news article that kind of summarized, um, I guess, the verdict and the arguments um, of both sides.
0: But that was yeah. pretty much it. So for the people that, were, um, that are unfamiliar with the case, it's the case of Nicholas Cruz, mm-hmm. who back in 2018, as a 19-year-old uh, teenager, walked into a school in a suburb of Miami in Parkland, Florida um, and murdered 17 people and injured, injured 17 others. He was convicted of uh, first degree murder on all 17 counts um, and some other stuff. Uh, ultimately um, he was found guilty on those charges, and the only question left to be decided that they've been litigating for months now was going to be the issue of whether or not he should live or he should die, which begs the question, girls, what do you know about the Eighth Amendment?
1: Absolutely nothing.
0: Okay, so the, the, the Eighth Amendment is just simply, it's the argument... Um, from the ACLU. Well, not the ACLU. It's it's a constitutional amendment that dictates uh, that there is a ban on cruel and unusual punishment. Opponents of the death penalty will argue that murdering another human being is in essence cruel and unusual should not be allowed. The federal government has largely laid that legal decision up to the states, which is why some states allow it, and other states do not. Florida is one of the states that allows it. Um, There's certainly arguments to be made for and against. Uh, When I was in law school, I wrote a big paper about how uh, the death penalty should be expanded and that it would not be cruel and unusual to um, sentence somebody to death depending on the crime. And I made an argument that it would be appropriate in cases of murder in the first degree, Uh, violent rape, and child molestation, especially uh, cases involving violence. Um, So I I argued for the expansion of the death penalty. Um, And then one of my cases, uh, my first cases right out of law school, implicated uh, the death penalty, and I was on the side of having to defend the guy that was facing the death penalty. Uh, We didn't actually end up um, taking that case all the way. It was just a case that I was involved with. Um, but it gave me a different perspective when I was in practice trying to uh, litigate it. But let me ask you guys a question. If you guys had the unfortunate um, luck or not luck, I guess, to be involved in a situation where you were facing either life imprisonment without possibility of parole or the death penalty, which do you think would be more cruel and unusual? Life prison
1: way more. You would rather die. Yes.
0: What do you think, Ileana?
2: Depends on which person. Which person. I can't say the word person. (laughs) Um, Which jail? Um, Which jail? (laughs) Yeah. Because, I mean, I don't know. And also it depends a lot on how the person is feeling. like. If they are troubled by what they did or not, because if they're not troubled by what they did, it's just gonna be kind of like a hotel stay. But if they're really troubled, I think just staying alive, um, it's gonna be an additional punishment, like mentally, um, having to live with that. So,
0: I don't know. Some of these prisons, they set them up in like a, they get their own room. Yeah, they get three square meals a day. Mm-hmm. They get the ability to have to to work and earn an income. Mm-hmm. They get the ability to, to meet with family and other people and write love letters to all of their groupie fans for some of these serial killers. Oh, yes. Um, and live out their days um, rent free on mm-hmm. taxpayer dollars. And in some cases, they get to watch TV and they get to go on the Internet and they get like video games in their cell. It doesn't sound like that bad of a living. yep. If it's your only if the only alternative is death. So, mm-hmm. yeah, where you are in prison, I, I would agree plays a uh plays a role in it um personally i was a fan of a lot of the medieval tortures that they used to employ way back in the medieval times like the uh, putting people on the rack or like boiling boiling them alive okay (laughs) waterboarding the problem with that as the aclu so aptly points out is that's all well and good but there's been a number of Convictions that were overturned by the advancement of DNA evidence and things of that nature, and God forbid we put somebody through that kind of torture, uh, who was later found to be innocent, and that's happened um, hundreds, yeah. of, if not thousands, of times um, as DNA or scientific evidence has as expanded. So there's arguments on both sides, but the the Parkland sentencing was literally just that. So they came in. His defense uh, team, the way that they argued this was to lay out um, the history of his childhood and to argue that there was a number of factors that contributed um, him going down this road where he inevitably murdered 17 people and that his life should be spared because uh, ex- went wrong and y went wrong and z went wrong and all of these things and he had a tough childhood and you know dad wasn't around and um whatever he was neglected as a child and but for those things from happening he may have been able to contribute to society in a meaningful way Um, and therefore you should spare his life because he's just a human being and what they were asking the jury to do was to have empathy for him to put yourself in into uh His shoes, you know, anybody that experienced the atrocities that he's experienced in life would have likely led to the same results. And because of that, you know, he was only 19 years old at the time. Um, Since then, he's now 22 years old. He's grown up significantly. Would he want to, Would he? does he wish to take it back? Of course he does. Would he do it again today? No, he wouldn't because he's 22 years old. He's no longer the 19-year-old troubled child. Should we execute this man or should we, should we lock him up for life without the possibility of parole on the off chance that he might still be able to contribute something positive to humanity? And they left it up to the jury. And of course, uh, the prosecution um, was, of course not. We shouldn't because, you know, the family members and the victims and all of these people will never have their loved ones back. Um, their lives were stolen from them. They don't have any opportunity to contribute anything to society. And whatever good could come out of his uh, meager life, uh, locked up in incarceration for the rest of his natural life, um, is vastly outweighed by the sense of justice that the families of the victims deserve to ensure and making sure that this man is put to death in an expeditious Manner. So those were the juxtaposed arguments. And then the jury deliberated. And if they were going to vote on uh, the death penalty that was to be executed, they were to be unanimous in saying that there's no mitigating factors. There's nothing that we would consider that would alleviate uh, the concern for this man's uh, deservingness of the death penalty. And as it turns out, they were not unanimous. There was at least one. Uh, that had empathy and decided that he doesn't deserve to die despite what he did. And so as a result, this man is going to spend the rest of his life um locked up in a correctional facility somewhere in Florida. Um and uh I'm sure, you know, 10, 15, 20, 25 years from now, uh news outlets or media or whoever is going to be seeking him out for interviews And they might just make a documentary about his life like they did with the Jeffrey Dahmer. I don't know if you guys have been watching that. Oh, yes. Um, And um, make him even greater celebrity uh, than this news coverage has made him. Mm -hmm. And you'll be hearing about him for years on end. This is the nature of uh, our justice system, and that is the ramifications. These high-profile cases, the people that are convicted— the Jeffrey Dahmers of the world. (laughs) Who was that guy? The one that killed his, uh, well, Ted Bundy, but the guy that just, uh, he killed his wife and his kids because he had a mistress.
2: Oh, Lacey. Uh, The guy in Colorado. Lacey.
0: Not Lacey Peterson, but that's another one of those, Scott.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, Ah, who's that guy? Like it recently happened, like in 2018. I have got to look this up. His name was uh, 2018. That killed the girls. Colorado murders children i know there was oh watts watts the watts okay. guy christopher watts that one yeah yeah that guy he murders his wife mm-hmm. and, oh.
2: and the little girls yeah
0: those two beautiful little girls mm-hmm. and uh, my daughter is about their age right now i mean that was a that was a fascinating case Mm-hmm. Oh, that was a different case. Yeah. But the Watts case in particular, I mean, he, they go back and they, the FBI interviews him. And now, so now that you've been convicted, why don't you just come clean and just tell me everything mm-hmm. that happened? And then he does. And then he's telling the story about how he strangled his wife together or to death on the night that she came back. And then that following morning, what's really hard to watch about that case is uh, on the surveillance video um, of his neighbor. They catch him going back and forth between the car um and the garage and you could see the shadow of like this little person following him like this little child and you know healthy and happy and following her dad and you know up at 4:30 in the morning and he's loading uh, the dead body of his uh, now well his wife yeah he's passed away and murdered into the truck and you know what's wrong with mommy and he's giving them whatever answer he drives them to those oil rigs or whatever they were yeah, oil facilities and disposes of the body. But prior to doing that one by one, um, murders his daughters by uh suffocation in the truck one after another. And so the one that wasn't first had to watch her sister, um, be murdered by her dad and, um, knowing that she was next. And then the, ur- the, the injuries that were, revealed at the autopsy showed that the eldest, um, fought her dad with all the strength of her little 40 year old body as she was being, uh, strangled to death, um, by that man. Um, she fought as hard as she could. And, um, when the job was done, he disposes of their body in these oil tanks and where they, they were later recovered. That man was not sentenced uh, to the death penalty. He gets a uh, life without the possibility of parole. And um, he is living the life of a jailhouse celebrity. Um, last I heard, I don't know how accurate it is or not, but I heard that he has a boyfriend in jail. Oh. Boyfriend. So good for him on that. But he also has a number of female groupies who think that the he's. Fans. Uh, whatever, you know, such is the nature of humanity and so i don't know those are tough these are tough cases the (laughs) parkland one itself is devastating the christopher watts trial Mm -hmm. was devastating the lacey peterson trial was devastating the one that you had just mentioned um melissa about the the foster mom that had driven off a cliff with all her children in the car california um The world is an ugly place, ugly, ugly, ugly place, Mm -hmm. and this is what we have in our justice system. This is the best that we could do.
3: I want to hear your opinion, guys, about the Gypsy Rose case, because as a sociologist myself, I had to study that case, read it, and understand it when I was in college, and have very strong opinions about it, and I know they they also... Like, weirdly, did a series about it on Hulu, mm-hmm. about what happened to her. Yeah. a movie, too. And movie, too. Yeah. And it also turned into a celebrity yes. herself. So I want to know what you guys think about that case yeah. in particular, because this was not a parent killing their partner or their kids, but it was a kid killing her mom.
0: Oh, that case, the Netflix case? Yes.
3: Yes. Yeah.
0: Oh, are you? Are we talking about that one girl that was? she um, roses. Yeah,
3: her mom had Munchausen by
2: proxy. Yes,
0: I have mm-hmm. opinions about that case. Yes. Yeah. You know about the case, Alyana?
2: Yes, I saw the Hulu, all the series, movies, everything. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what What do you think about that?
2: Um,
1: I don't know. I mean, on um, she was. I don't, on one hand, I don't blame her. Um, She was
2: tremendously affected by her mother and whatever she was trying to achieve. Um, I don't remember the facts about, like, how long she was sentenced for and if she has the possibility of parole or not. But uh, I think this is one of those cases where she was very young when she committed all these these crimes. And she also had that influence from that other crazy boyfriend that she had at the moment. So Mm -hmm. maybe with the years passing and some type of rehabilitation, this could have been a case where I think maybe this person should be released. Um, Definitely not a death penalty type of case.
0: Well, you got to think about it, that this, uh, this Gypsy Rose Mm -hmm. was it's, it's funny how quickly um, a victim becomes a suspect in a mm-hmm. case, but that's basically what happened to her. Yep. Any, if, if the law was aware of anything that was happening to her in, in the years prior to that incident, mm-hmm. she would have been taken from her mom's home and placed in a foster home or with uh, somebody else. Because what was happening for years and years is her mom was poisoning her. Yeah, and doing all of this crazy mm-hmm. stuff and hospitalizing her and uh, making her sick and um, stunting her growth for sure, I'm I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Who knows what uh, the mental ramifications of that were, but she had been abused by her for her entire life. Yeah. And uh, mom exerted ultimate control over her life. And then the problem with that was she wanted her to be a child. Wasn't it like they had like a GoFundMe because she's trying to pretend she had cancer or something?
1: Yeah. And so
0: she grows up and she's 14, 15, 16 years old. She jumps on the internet and she meets this guy and who um, she's very ripe for manipulation. She's looking mm-hmm. for a way out, and here's this guy offering a way out as twisted as it was, and, you know, she's very impressionable. She does not have the same capacity for discerning right from wrong as uh, any person that did not grow up in that condition. She's been very much compromised by her circumstances. And um, psychologically, I don't have the faintest clue about um, what she would be diagnosed with or, like, what the uh, procedure would to— would be to try to rehabilitate her or get her to a normal state of mind but at that time she was very much mentally ill by way of uh, her mother's abuse and neglect and so now she's being manipulated and she probably had the mental makeup of a child because she had never progressed uh, into adulthood the way that a normal person would have the opportunity to do so and uh, this guy convinces her to do some terrible things, and she does. And so I think that there is probably, and I, I i don't remember anything about that case, but I'd imagine that there was capacity issues in that case. Does she have the capacity to stand trial? Did she have the mental makeup to be able to form the, uh, the, the mental state required to commit murder in the first degree that would implicate the death penalty? Um, what would be the most that she could be uh, found guilty of? In my estimation, not looking at any of that case, I have no idea what that case results were, um, but it seems to me like an involuntary manslaughter case in that she was manipulated by this guy, had the mental makeup of a child, and was not competent to stand trial let alone form the mens rea, to commit the crimes that her boyfriend was convicted of. I gotta assume that they found him guilty of all kinds of stuff, didn't they? Mm-hmm. Did they sentence him to death or no? I don't know. I, I, I did not look at that case, but yeah, I think that those were the issues with her. And I think the law—never um, mind my opinion—the law requires. Um, that there be a finding if we're going to hold her to account for anything, that she, if she's charged with the crime, number one, let's say she's charged with first degree murder. That mm-hmm. means that she had the ability to plan and carry out a plan to murder her mom. Mm-hmm. But then the mental state would be their biggest issue. And so there would be a defense to that. So I got to imagine she was probably charged with something less. Even if it was second degree, that still requires a mens rea element that i'm not sure they'd be able to prove under the circumstances and um i think the big issue on in that case uh would be simply her her her, her mental state i'm gonna look good i, I gotta yeah. know what happened to miss gypsy rose gypsy what was rose. the criminal court findings they found her she's only four eleven. look at that so it says "Moon, missouri um the trials uh, after four days, the case was sent to jury. Uh, jury has the option of finding, uh, I guess, the boyfriend guilty of one of the three murder charges.
2: Second degree.
0: Involuntary manslaughter, secondary m- murder, or first degree or not guilty of any of them. After approximately two hours of del- deliberation, they returned with the verdict and boyfriend was found guilty of first degree murder and armed criminal action. That makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. In February of 2019, he was sentenced to life in prison for the murder conviction, the only possible option since prosecutors had declined to seek uh, the death penalty. Um, it doesn't say what happened to her. She
2: pleaded guilty to second degree.
0: Oh, here's Gypsy Rose. Okay. So, well, so they found her guilty of second degree. That's what you guys are telling me. She pleaded. Um, well, that's a shame. So, what was her sentence then? When Dean asked her, "Would she escape the situation?" Mm-hmm. She's a victim of Munchausens. I hope to find somebody. Um, I'm just trying to figure out what her sentence was.
2: Just ten years in prison.
0: Ten years in prison. Yeah. Does that seem fair to you guys?
1: I mean, it's still murder, right? Murder is murder. Mm-hmm. Um, she, the mom had it coming, in my opinion. But ten years is ten. Is right. Could have been life could have been death penalty so, ten years
0: hmm murder is murder i don't sure- sh- I'm not sure I agree with that what do you think Ileana? That's the
3: thing I-, I really think it's unfair <laughs>
2: <laughs> I don't know um like I think ten years might be enough for her to um i don't know get the help that she needs um but i think some I would have expected something like around maybe 25. Um, when I saw 10, I was like, it's maybe a little bit too low. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but You wanna know
0: what I would have given her? What? This is why I could I could have never been a prosecutor. I could never be a prosecutor. <laughs> I'm like, I'm just such a defense attorney at heart. Um, I would have just dismissed the charges. No. I would have given her um, I would have found her guilty on uh involuntary manslaughter and sentenced her to a suspended sentence credit for time served on the condition uh, that she uh, follows some kind of a probationary plan or something. I don't know, but something where she's rehabilitated and able to have a life outside of the hell that she was forced uh, to live off of or live through. I'm, I'm not sure Jocelyn, if I agree that murder is murder. (laughs) <laughs> um i have seen uh situations whereby um murder may not have been murder you know people are driven to do certain things should we charge a person who was violently raped who accidentally in self-defense murdered her attacker no we don't do that because no. we have the self-defense defense other places have like the stand your ground uh where you get the uh, trayvon martin type results. Um, Sickening case in and of itself. Um, mm-hmm. I just feel like everything is a case-by-case basis. I really feel like the mental aspect of these charges and these crimes should be taken into account. If you walk into a school and you shoot up the school and you murder 17 people, I don't think there's much redeeming factor mm-hmm. in that. But if the person that you murder it comes to it comes to light that has been uh, the abuser for years on end and uh, successfully stunted this person's growth, both mentally and physically. Um, and the person accused of murder has lived in a personal hell um, for the entirety of her life. And her only way out was through this criminal trial whereby she was accused of murder. And now she gets to stay in jail, which may be a respite from what her life was prior to that. I'm not so sure we should be punishing those people. And I would defend, I would argue very vehemently um, against uh, punishing her any further than what she's been punished. But that's, uh, you know, the opinion of one attorney, not all, (laughs) probably not most. She couldn't even even walk. So the thing with
3: this is like her mom kept her like glued To a wheelchair claiming that she had something in her muscles yeah that would not permit her to walk so she wasn't even allowed for that wasn't she injecting her with ketamine That. Mm -hmm. it was horrible she made her believe she had cancer twice so made her go through chemo so she was like her reproductive system was pretty much screwed she would never be able to have children of her own if she ever decided to yeah she cut, it, she cut her date of birth like three to four times. She made her believe, I think she was like 14 or 13, and she was like 19.
1: Damn.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: You know crazy. what? Let's talk about um, sovereign citizenry. Let's talk <laughs> about the Daryl Brooks case. Why are we talking about all this darkness? <laughs> I know it's Halloween, mm-hmm. but um, have you girls been following the Daryl Brooks case? The sovereign citizen? Uh, uh, He was the guy that drove into like this parade and um, drove his SUV into a um, parade of uh, people, ran over a bunch of people, killed a bunch of people. And um, he's standing trial for whether or not he committed those acts. He is representing himself. What was that? Oh, I don't know if uh, there was a... He's the one that's on trial for murder, so I don't know if he had a, He. I think that's... Ileana, wasn't that one of his claims that he had a driver? I don't remember. I don't think that there's ever been a finding that there was a driver. I think Wait, that's one of his arguments.
2: Is this a, the crazy guy?
0: The Yes, yeah, the crazy guy. Wait. But then wants to put the state of Wisconsin on the witness stand. Well,
2: I thought... I think I'm confusing him with the guy that... Was denying that there was ever a shooting. Uh,
0: I'm going to show you, I'm, I'm going to share with you really quick because as soon as I know I his do, face, you're going to, uh, yeah, yeah, this is him. He's
1: this guy. Oh no, then I'm confusing him. That guy, you know who he is?
0: Mm, I don't think so. Um, So he is, um, he's the one that says that he is representing himself. Okay. He's basing his criminal defense and the murder charges Mm -hmm. on the fact that he is a sovereign citizen Okay. and therefore does not recognize the laws of the state of Wisconsin. He doesn't recognize the Wisconsin court system. He doesn't recognize Mm -hmm. any federal laws and he does not identify by the name Daryl Brooks. He is, in essence, uh, without a jurisdiction, and therefore we could not legally find him guilty of a crime. That is the essence of his argument. That is the sovereign citizen argument. You know where the sovereign citizen uh, defense came from? No idea. It was actually, actually um, born about through white nationalism, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: who, while we were in the height of Jim Crow laws, um, did not want to recognize Uh, desegregation and decided that the only real citizens are white citizens. And so we are going to be as a white nation, sovereign from the laws of the United States. And we will Mm -hmm. not pay your taxes, nor will we follow your laws, nor will we abide by the rules of your courthouse. And we're going to do what we want. It's a very popular argument amongst the uneducated and it's gotten a small boost um, and it's popularity because of, you know, websites like YouTube and Daryl Brooks now, I'm sure sh- I'm sure. But he's literally walking into court saying that um, uh Mr. Brooks, uh, will you please uh enter your plea? And then he'll say something like, I'm not sure who Mr. Brooks are or is. like, well, isn't your name Daryl Brooks? No, it is not. I do not go by that name. I was not named Daryl Brooks by anybody that I recognize, whatever. I'm invisible, you runner, so I do not uh, recognize these charges. Anyway, uh, the, the general consensus with uh, the way that we handle that in the courts is the sovereign citizen defense is not a real defense. Mm-hmm. And so if you go into court expecting that you're going to beat your murder rap because uh, you don't recognize the laws of the state in which you're accused, um, it's not going to be recognized as a viable defense. And it's the same effect of having no defense at all. And what's interesting about this case, and I'll let you guys listen in to him a little bit and just see how um, circular his reasoning is, these sovereign citizen folks. He's trying to um, appeal to the federal constitution as far as uh, rights that he thinks he's afforded, while at the same time denouncing them because he is a sovereign citizen. He doesn't recognize. But this this is his defense. Tell me when you're ready to pull your hair out. <laughs> By the way, uh, this judge, uh, the patience of a, sh- of a saint with this one. Uh, let me share the screen again. I'm going to put this on.
1: Share. That was found in this man. How in this In this leave we rights and complied in that <laughs> regard and comply In the state of this case was initiated initially by the see It He, he said earlier that he saw the complaints, every complaint he saw in Wisconsin. All right, he goes
0: on, he, he could do that
1: forever. <laughs>
2: oh my God, this kind of reminds me of the narcissistic parent and the very reasonable parent conversations that I see sometimes between clients that this parent just goes on and on and on with all these crazy theories and accusations. Yeah. And the other one is like, okay, I'm just gonna go ahead and repeat myself through the point and it goes back again to him. Oh god. It's it's uncomfortable to I just watch. Wanted-
0: I want to tie this into what we were talking about in the beginning about integrity and the art of persuasion and how to persuade Mm -hmm. and what it looks like when you're not confident about your case and you're on the losing side. Oftentimes it looks like very similar to what this gentleman was doing, which is trying to confuse the hell out of the court at every possible turn and lodging every objection and right to my accuser and sixth amendment. And I've never seen a complaint, (laughs) but could I lodge an objection? I need a written statement on the record. They'll do that kind of stuff. The simplest argument is usually the most persuasive yeah. in the courtroom. Mm-hmm. And the more complicated you have to make it, chances are you're trying to deceive. And that's what people's instinct tells them. What do you girls think about this guy? Have you heard about this guy? No? very clearly haven't? No, I haven't. heard him. Um, but
3: from his argument, it's pretty comical to watch.
0: Yeah, I've seen these arguments in court before. Um, mostly in criminal court, when people are representing themselves, they come up with the mm-hmm. sovereign citizen stuff. And uh, they think that if they make these objections, it's going to do anything. It really, it's never worked. Mm -hmm. It it never works. Um, It may work in some like smaller civil cases just because they're tired of dealing with you and you know what they're dismissed. I don't know. But in terms Mm -hmm. of these criminal cases, I've never seen them work. And it's not going to work for this guy. They're going to find him guilty pretty shortly. And he's probably going to be sentenced. Who knows? A life in prison or death and with that uh you guys we've been going for about an hour and 10 minutes yep. now and i think over it's time to wrap up episode 13 okay. um girls did you have any parting words uh for our listening audience um no parting
3: words except thank you for having us yeah thank
0: you <laughs> oh you're gonna th- you guys belong here you're gonna thank anybody <laughs> Iliana, did you have a thing to say
2: no just uh happy to be back and hopefully next week it goes more smoothly with all being in the same place no more yes it's going to be the first time (laughs) that
0: we have a show where everybody is in the studio at the same time Um, i'm really excited for that Um, and it is a pleasure to have you back Um, the show kind of sucks when you're not around you just give the show that extra a little something extra Uh, for everybody else uh, if you've gotten this far you've listened to the entire show and i really appreciate you I would like to remind you that you can still watch us, um, our full video episodes on YouTube, if that's how you choose to watch, if you want something to look at, or um, more commonly, most people are listening to us through the audio podcast. And you can find our podcast, uh, blah, you can find our podcast on every major podcast uh, platform, whatever it is that you listen to. Uh, our show airs um, on um, every Friday afternoon. Uh, We record on Thursdays, and so if there's anything that you want us to address, if you have a legal question, we did have some legal stuff we were supposed to get to. I completely forgot about it, and we ran out of time. Maybe we'll do it next week. next week it's good. Um, Yeah, but if there's anything you guys want us to talk to, as always, you are willing to contact us directly, either through YouTube or Instagram Mm -hmm. or Facebook or however it is you find us, and we will be happy to discuss your topics on the air. Uh, And with that, we will see you all next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Thank you all for listening to the entire podcast. We really do appreciate that. And as always, you can find us on YouTube on the Tilted Lawyer Podcast YouTube channel or on your podcast carrier of choice. If you feel we've presented anything of value, please leave a five-star rating, like, and subscribe. We always appreciate that kind of thing. And we do look forward to seeing you all again live every Thursday at 3 in the afternoon. We love you all. Take care.